Okay, hello. Thank you to the Edgar Rice Burroughs podcast. Uh, this is episode number five. My name is Tim DeForest. I'm the author of several books on uh, pre-digital pop culture, including the pulp fiction magazines that Burroughs normally published his works in. Um, and I'm joined tonight by two other uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs fans. I'm Scott Stewart. I'm up here in uh, northern Minnesota. Uh, looking forward to our discussion tonight. My name is Jess Terrell from Parts Unknown back in the hill. <laughs> but you, you would know me from the Facebook discussion group entitled Love of All Things Edgar Rice Burroughs Talking ERB Every Day with Lilla Pop and some 3,000 some odd Burroughs fans. Having a great Hope you all can join us. Yeah, it's a fun group. Okay, we are going to be talking tonight about The Chessmen of Mars, the fifth book in Burroughs' series about Barsoom, about, uh, you know, his name for Mars. And uh, it is my personal favorite of the Barsoom books. And it's near the top of the list of my favorite Burroughs books. It's actually a wonderful, exciting novel with just uh, dripping with imagination. Um, it was originally published in Argosy Magazine. Um, it was... Uh, uh, serialized over six issues in February and March of 1922. Um, it was published as a book by uh, AC, the publisher A.C. McClurg in 19, a little later in 1922. It's been reprinted multiple times since then. Uh, the Probably the two most notable uh, uh, reprints are in Ace, a paperback done by Ace Books in 1962, which had a wonderful cover by Roy Krenkel, and a 1979 uh, printing by Ballantine Books with a Michael Whelan cover on it. And that's not to knock the, the great covers that other artists have done. done. Those are just happen to be my two favorites. Um, so it is still around today. Like many of Burroughs' early works, it's in the public domain, so you can find an electronic copy easily, easily enough if you want to read it. And it is well worth reading or revisiting if you're listening to this as a Burroughs fan who hasn't read it for a few years. It's just a great book. And the way we want to do this tonight is before we get to talking about the, the plot, we want to talk about some of the locations and characters in the novel to give a little background to it. Um, because one of the first places visited by Tara of Helium, the, the heroine in this book, um, and by, um, you know, by Gaethel, or the man who's trying to rescue her, um, is the, uh, the, the area called uh, Bantum which is a very remote area of Mars, of Barnsum, that's inhabited by Caldanes. Um, and Caldanes are one of the most imaginative and best alien species ever created. They're just, oh, they're just great. They are disembodied heads that uh, have a symbiotic relationship with what they call Rikors, which are basically human bodies without a head. And the disembodied head will attach itself to the, time, to the top of the Rikor body and then be able to control that body. Um, and a, uh, a Caldane has no emotional attachment to his Rikor body. He can switch bodies all the time, or if the bodies he's using is killed, he just leaves it and finds another one. They have Rikors kind of grazing in the grass uh, just all around for them to grab and use whenever they want. Um, the, the Caldanes are, have a philosophy that the body is unimportant, that intellect is everything. They have developed uh, some uh, pretty effective uh, um, mental skills to be able to, like, for instance, mentally control somebody who the, with whom they have eye contact. And uh, 
they are pretty brutal in some ways. There's, they have a complete willingness to eat human flesh. In fact, I think they consider it a delicacy. Um, so ex we will meet, during this story, we will meet one uh, Caldane who has some pretty significant character development and actually becomes friends with the human characters. But most Caldanes are pretty brutal guys. They just have a, 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 a very um, uh, arrogant uh, culture where they look down on other life forms. Um, and Jess, you were going to talk about Manator, the other, uh, well, unless you guys have any anything to add about the Caldanes and about Bantoom before we move on. I, I would put in there, um, not your description, but mm. uh, Burl's description of the heads and the bodies, and I'll get to that in a minute with my section too, is just incredible. And the way he thought it out, mm -hmm. and the, uh, uh, if you want to call it the philosophical aspect as opposed to aesthetic yeah, mm. uh, mental prowess and intellect knowledge over menial workhorses or labor mm. is, is a very significant and super strong build of, of an alien civilization. I think. Yeah, it really is. It's a wonderful example of world building. And of course, world building was one of Burroughs's fit was was strengths so that uh, the Caldanes stand out as a particularly good example of that. Uh, just, I think, marks how good they are, because um, just about all of Burroughs' world building was great. So uh, this one being notable just means it's amongst the best of the best. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and so, Jess, you were, uh, were going to talk about Manator, the other uh, country that is a major, a major setting for this novel. I will indeed, but right quick before I get into Manator, just my own word on, on Gek, I find him an incredibly engaging character. Mm -hmm. He grows as a, um, as, a, as a person, as a character that is, and whereas devo developing the intellect, as you said, was his main focus, and really the main focus of all Caldanes, as we could, best we could tell, but he, uh, he, he discovers music thanks to Tara, mm -hmm. and and then friendship, of course, and those things open up whole new worlds for him. So. Uh, yeah, that he's willing to, to consider other philosophies as among the Chaldeans is remarkable in of itself. So, so he does, he does uh, um, experience real character growth, I think, in a very realistic way. I think we accept him. It doesn't seem corny or contrived at all. When, when, he, when he changes and improves himself as a person, I think we, we believe it completely because it's just done well. Oh, I, I agree totally. I also want to be sure to give a shout out for the audio book, the audio version, Chessmen of Mars from Tantor Media, as read by John Boland. But Mr. Boland does an extraordinary job. job. He mimics the voices of these various characters. He adds real depth and, and, and personalization to Gek's voice in particular. And, and, and Gek is already a, a very impressive individual. You, you hear his voice spoken by Mr. Boland. He does. He becomes even more, more touching. Cool. I'll have to, I'll have to check that one out. I wasn't familiar with that. So thank you. All right. All right. And now off to Manator. Mm -hmm. on, on Barsoom, Manator is both a country and a city. Mm -hmm. So there's a there's a country and is and then this major city in there is called Manator. Now there's two other cities, Manataj and Manatos. We'll talk about them in just a moment. But the city of Manator is the place where they embalm the dead, then place them in life like poses. 
sometimes they stack them like firewood off in the corner. I suppose run out of room. Well, newcomers come to town and find find out they're talking to a stiff. So that's always a, a big joke at Manitor. <laughs> And, and also another thing they do in, in Manator is play JTAN with live people. JTAN, by the way, is that game like chess. And this is one of those Barsoomian words I'm going to butcher. But JTAN is what I've said all my life. So just bear with me. Mm-hmm. And as and Tam, as you pointed out, we don't really know the correct pronunciation. That's right. But Manator, they play JTAN. And, and to add an extra thrill, when, when two pieces occupy the same square thanks to a move with this uh, JTAN game, which is similar to chess, they engage in mortal combat, and mortal combat's to the very end. Well, it does thin out the herd there, so it helps control the population. Their Jeddak in Manator is cruel and sadistic, Otar, Otar, and I will probably repeat that phrase four or five times during my uh, reading of of the book, or summary of the book. Mm -hmm. Now, the most distant city in the country of Manator is Manataj. Turan claims to be, well, Turan, who is really Gahan of Gathal, which is another point I need to make. Mm-hmm. But Turan claims to be from Manitaj so that he can fight for Tara in this game of Jaitan. We'll mm-hmm. cover that in more detail later on. Uh, it is seldom that men of Manitaj uh, attend other than decennial games. That is, they don't get over to Manator very often, probably because there's really animosity between these three cities. Now, the third city is Manitos. It's a powerful city. It's better ruled than Manator. Only criminals there are sentenced to the JTAN games, and the game is usually stopped at the first sign of blood. Uthor, U-T-H-O-R, is the Jed of Manitos. He is called the Great Jed throughout the country, of, throughout the entire country of Manitor because the people love him, and Otar, the Jed over in the city of Manitor, hates him. And it wouldn't take much for the two to go to war. Mm-hmm. So that's the country of Manitor and its three cities within. Um, yeah, and uh, one thing I enjoy about the novel is just this Manitor is another case of Burroughs' great world building. Uh, and we eventually get quite a bit of information about the political situation and the various characters like Otar and Uthor. Uh, but it's... It's never just boring background information. He expertly puts it in throughout the story, so we gradually more understand more and more about the situation. And so when a civil war does break out, we understand the circumstances behind it, and it's a legitimate part of the story. Um, so uh, Manator just is a great case, a great example of Burroughs' world building and his ability as a storyteller to, to get across the information he needs to get to us without slowing the action of the story down. Well said. Mm. Uh, Burl's world building is a story unto itself. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Specifically for this book, I always thought that was pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we should also mention that there's a lot of slaves from Gaithal, which is the the male protagonist's home city uh, in Manator, um, and uh, uh, that comes into that comes into play very importantly in the in the uh, story. Um, it turns out that Gaithal is not that far from Manator, and uh, they've been secretly raiding Gaithal for slaves for generations. Um, so it just gives uh, it gives Gaian uh, a uh, source of allies when uh, later in the novel. I think I think it's important to note too. Again, <coughs> we want to 
take a look at uh, some of Burroughs' writings in the context of their times. Mm -hmm. When he's talking about slavery, he's not making it a romantic thing. He's not giving it an approval because it, it is a dicey issue nowadays. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's an issue of something that, that's very, very bad, evil. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but he kind of puts it on the level, if you look back past medieval times and, and uh, uh, go to times uh, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, uh, 1,000 years ago, there were two basic types of slavery, and I'm being very general in this description. Mm -hmm. There was the captives of war and the uh, buying and selling of uh, just a totally horrendous practice of slavery. There is also a form of slavery, which some people um, referred to in a different type of, type of a servanthood, in which people indentured themselves to it. Mm -hmm. And in general, they were considered or called slaves too, because they themselves or their families, whoever, were under ownership to someone, sometimes for a year, sometimes for five years or for their life, either because they had no other way to provide income for themselves. Uh, it was someone... It might have been someone who could have been a cruel master. It might have been someone they felt they would at least get a, a survivable or fair shake from. Now, again, I'm not giving any approval of slavery, yeah. but they're looking at it. So that comes into play sometimes where uh, um, there's a point here uh, where uh, a slave is offered their freedom, but they don't want to take it because they really have no place to go. Mm -hmm. That's not expensive, but it is a different context than when we're looking about, about the horrors of uh, uh, you know, from uh, you see depicted because of the war between the states and the U.S. Yeah. Or, or even forms of slavery that are going on around the world today. Yeah, it's a slavery such as existed in the Roman Empire where there, was no, uh, there wasn't necessarily that brutal element of racial bigotry that existed in American slavery. So it was still wrong and it was still nasty, but it, it at least left that one level of cruelty out. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, I if I may jump in, slavery mm -hmm. on Barsoom mm -hmm. is not based on color. Not mm -hmm. based on color, it is based on power. Yeah. If one, if one country conquers another country, then the conquered country may find themselves as slaves. Mm -hmm. And if one individual, shall we say, conquers another individual, maybe a slave situation could develop there. But again, it's all due to power, not color on Barsoom. Yeah. And that and that does that does change the context without having to give approval to the institution of slavery, um, and it is worth mentioning. So, uh, so uh, Scott, you were going to do a summary of the first eight chapters for us. Sure, and and uh, I had to remember when I was getting stuff ready here earlier this afternoon too. That is actually eight chapters in the prelude. I don't want to forget that part. Oh, you should. I don't think I mentioned the prelude when I made our outline, Which, but we yeah. should mention it. It's a fun prelude. It is part of the story, and it, it does introduce the idea of games of uh, strategy, too, mm -hmm. uh, where Ed, who we will take, uh, assumed to be Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, uh, sitting in, in a uh, house where he's been playing chess with a friend, Shay. Uh, his friend's name is Shay, if I'm pronouncing that right. And... Um, Shay has gone to bed, and they've just uh, finished a game of chess. And uh, shortly after, the, uh, suddenly a figure appears, and it's John Carter come to visit his nephew, or, or ERB, or however you want to designate that. And uh, um, uh, the age differences between the nephew and John Carter 
John Carter pretty much looks the same. The nephew has grown up from a child to being a man now. And uh, are meeting again to find out about the latest adventures on Barsoom. And, and uh, they work with that chess game will show up here because that'll come up later on there. And as John Carter starts to tell the story, or ERB says, I'm going to tell the story uh, in like a third person, which helps provide the excuse of why it can be a narrative the way it is for this science fiction story as opposed to someone continually going, and then I ran down the hall, and then I had a sword fight. Mm -hmm. And set that up. So it starts off with Terra of Helium, who is the daughter of John Carter and uh, Deja Thoris, and there's a, uh, a dance because her parents are basically the warlord or prince king of, of uh, Barsoom and, and uh, Deja Thoris being the uh, uh, princess. And there she sees her friends who are also part of this formal time. <coughs> and there's a, a young man, let's uh, uh, say, Dejour Cantos, who she has a bit of her heart leaning towards him. And he's spending time with someone else, so he, she considers that. Uh, she's a little upset about that. Mm -hmm. But someone else who is visiting her dad is, uh, who you mentioned earlier, uh, Gahan, who's a Jed of uh, Gaethal. And Jed would be considered uh, a position like a king or a prince, mm -hmm. as, as I take it in these novels. And I think for most part I've just used, used the term prince or king in the description of a couple of the characters. Uh, instead of tying up some of the terminology that people can learn by reading the book themselves, I think that's part of the, the joy of reading these is a, a discovery of the uh, terms and vocabulary he's uh, Burroughs created in these stories. So uh, uh, Gahan uh, dances with her, uh, is very quickly entranced by her, and tells her so. She considers him to. Uh, uh, she doesn't care for his forwardness, and her eyes are not on him, so she wants to, you know, shush, shush, keep him away. Mm -hmm. And she gets a little tired at this formal ball, and, and as she leaves, she decides to go out on a ride on, on her own little uh, s uh, single rider you know, uh, airship, if you want to call it that, uh, the uh, flyer that she can take out over the, over the uh, sands of Mars, the rocks and sands of Mars. And go off by herself and she comes back to it her parents are a little you know wondering okay uh, you were rather rude you bit on becoming for a young princess to uh, leave your guests that way and she kind of has a haughty uh, little bit of the spoiled if you want to call it teenager or college age uh, beautiful girl type uh, complex she's carrying at the beginning of the story so like you know well hey I don't have to deal with it if I don't want and it's at this point, too, that uh, there's a, they have the uh, Jetton game that uh, Deja Thoris and, and uh, John Carter are playing. Mm -hmm. And Burroughs goes into description about the game and gives the rules uh, about it. It's not boring. It's not like reading inside of Monopoly Box or no, <laughs> it's, like that. It sounds like a fun variation of chess. I've always wanted to play it myself. And I have I've read that someone I think in the twenties or thirties did create a board game based on it, and Burroughs approved of it. And people, uh, the reviews on it, I'd like to see someone else bring it back or find a copy of it. Uh, people said 
you might start it off as a novelty because of how the game was created, mm-hmm. but you'll find yourself rather enjoying it through the end. So I'd be real curious to uh, uh, see how they came up with it, formatted it, and played it. So uh, she uh, um, ends up, uh, I won't go through all the details, uh, back to her own quarters area, and she's fuming a bit about what's going on. She's having a little bit of that. I'm not really happy with life. I want to do things my way thing. Discusses with her slave, and that's what I want to bring up the slave. Um, tells her slave of the stuff she wants to do, and the slave cautions her against it. Uh, and she goes, well, if you don't like what I'm doing and want to do something else, she goes, I will give you your freedom. And here the slave says, no, I, I want to stay with you. This is where I want to be careful so people don't think he's romancing idea of slavery, that the slaves love their masters. Mm-hmm. Uh, which we've heard uh, many discussions about, you know, on the news and different uh, pundits and stuff. But just for the sake of the story, that uh, she's safe, she feels uh, like she has a life that isn't dangerous. Because again, you have warring societies here. Mm-hmm. You can free, and you might go decide to go someplace else. You could get killed or become a slave for somebody else. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's the lesser of evils too. And uh, <clears throat> when uh, uh, Tara takes off, and again, Burroughs tends to give the names, use them very formally. It's almost always John Carter, John Carter, Warlord, or Tara Fulium. It isn't just she or he, Tara went and did this. He, he'll give the full title, Tara Fulium, when she uh, goes places or is introduced to people. And uh, ends up in a uh, storm in which it's noted that it's the worst storm uh, in their recorded history on helium, or uh, excuse me, well, around the city of helium, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, on Mars that they see there, blows are completely off course. Now, he spends close to a chapter describing this storm, and it seems like much isn't going on, but his writing about the storm and the rolling of the vehicle and what's going through her mind uh, is... Um, uh, uh, in a way, surprisingly engaging. Uh, it, there's not a whole lot of moving the story. But it, story yeah, it's a, it's a good adventure theme uh, scene, yeah. and, and we even get a little bit of an insight into Tara. We're, we're getting to know she's kind of a spoiled brat. But one of her yeah. first thoughts when she's blown off course and she knows he's going to be lost is, uh, people might die looking for me. That's terrible. So we see that she's not a completely rotten person. She does actually care about other people. Yeah, she is concerned about him and doesn't want to create something uh, that her own impulses or actions uh, can be hurtful to somebody else. And we'll see this throughout the story, the, the growth in her in that way, too, where this is really a, a character development about uh, her own personal journey of uh, a mature, more mature young woman as opposed to a, a younger, self-involved uh, person who, if they had him, would be taking <laughs> selfies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, um, well, to say she does crash, um, or or a storm uh, takes her off course because the vehicle is still uh, usable, and that's where she ends up seeing this area, in which at first she thinks it's uh, people who may be dead. They're lying there without heads or headless, and then realizes they're foraging for food and moving around like in a pen, like they're cattle, and. You know, I would love to see this book made into a movie, mm-hmm. whether animated 
or live action and 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 of course I shouldn't have to say it but handled properly <laughs> with yeah. the special effects because this is really has many themes you would expect to find in in a horror story by Lovecraft or whatever uh, the uh, bodies here and these are the Rikers um, uh, have no head they uh, feed themselves by blindly finding food that's been put in the area and shoving in, in holes down down in uh, into their bodies it's almost like a vegetation like uh, Venus flytrap because these are bodies they have some senses but these aren't bodies that have a head to do any thinking or have feelings or senses we would expect to that is where when she uh, soon sees the crawling heads that look like reminds her of spiders uh, are when they uh, end up uh, being placed uh, place themselves onto the bodies and he describes how they hook themselves in and and create uh, a sensory connection so that they're in control of them instead of just riding a horse it'd be like if you actually became a horse if you were like a centaur mm -hmm. uh, you have control of everything you're doing on it and, and the bodies are in perfect shape and he talks about them being like uh, Adonis or Apollo or, or or for the females or males both uh, perfect specimens and then the heads are very overblown, bloated, ugly. Uh, uh, they talk uh, almost in a monotone thing because they don't really have individual identities in in a certain way. Their whole pursuit is about intellect, not uh, the aesthetics of uh, pleasure around them. Mm -hmm. It goes on that time, then she sees this and she realizes this is not an area she wants to be. How will she escape? And at this time, some bants come on, which is, are, are a Martian form of uh, lions. And, uh, ten legs, I believe, if I remember right. I think so. Eight or ten? Does that sound right, Jess? I think it's ten legs. <laughs> um, are we talking about thoats or bants? Bants. The bant bants have either eight or ten legs. They've been pictured with both of memory serves. They've got, I think Burl said they have ten Thoats have, uh, I believe he says, eight. There's a difference between them and the writings. Yeah. As as the and, and these are the bands that uh, chase her up some trees. They don't climb the trees. And she stays there for several days before uh, they finally leave her instead of staying there, getting tired of waiting for her to come down so they can <laughs> eat her. And uh, she uh, comes in closer where the city is with the towers and stuff. Um, they, She sees the... Uh, uh, if you want to call it the workers, they're out in the fields working, and she tries to hide, but she does get discovered and gets uh, taken prisoner. And uh, that is, of course, where we uh, end up uh, uh, finding out about uh, Gek. And Gek is one of the people involved in, in principally in, in capturing her um, out in the fields here. And he is going to bring her to uh, who he calls, I'm going to say, Lude. L-U-U-D. That sounds as good Lude, as any other. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sounds Lude as good as Lude. any other, yeah. yeah. Lude's <laughs> been called worse things than that. <laughs> <laughs> and again, uh, as you guys mentioned earlier, these heads are the Caldanes. Mm -hmm. And he is the head, of, <laughs> no pun intended, <laughs> head of the Caldanes. But, um, <laughs> so he... Uh, He's the head uh, head. <laughs> he has the head head. Uh, Gek is going to bring her uh, 
uh, to him. Uh, meantime, during the time that transpires before they get to him, uh, she ends up humming or singing a song. He's never heard music like this before. And he asks her what it is, and she explains where it comes from. And he's like, well, they don't have that type of soul. They don't appreciate that. But having a brain that obviously has evolved from what they would consider a more primitive time, the music does emotionally affect him. And that will uh, be part of this storyline. Uh, one of the things to backtrack just a bit, when she hears, sees, sees the uh, Keldanes on the Rikers and when they start doing things, uh, uh, Burroughs mentions about their whistling. And there's like a whistle, a sharp whistle or a communicative type whistling in the air going on. And I found that that, again, in a movie, could be a very scary feature. Uh, and the way he uses the description of the audio with the uh, whistling when they're like hunting her down and doing the whistles over here, over there, that type of thing, compared to her singing that ends up uh, becoming a, uh, a lure for Gek, I, I find a very interesting balance. I, I think... Yeah. I oh, just, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, both the, the balance between the way they use sounds and uh, also pointing out that Burroughs could be a great horror writer when he wanted to put those sort of elements into his story. He would always do so effectively. Yes. And I could, I was, when I was reading these scenes, and I can hear the whistling or how I imagine in my head from his description. Like this is creepy. I want to see it in a movie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it would be a superb movie. It really would be. I think an animated miniseries would be the best way to do it. Oh, I'd love it. Now, you guys have probably both seen from years ago the uh, clip they made. Was it Fleischer's or? It Fleischer was uh, Bob Clampett. Right. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Did early uh, rough drawings on animating a John Carter story. And that would have been incredible. I think they might have gone light on this area because it's quite graphic the idea of the holes on the shoulders of the bodies and and uh, uh, how horrible the heads are supposed to, mm -hmm. to look. I, I, I love those clips. Um, I'll jump ahead here anyway. He does bring her to Gek. Gek wants to uh, uh, keep her in one way or another. Along the way, she discovers that they feast on, on human flesh. Uh, the Rikers, when they have not done their, have maybe finished uh, with their duties or or no other use to them, or the ones that have been fattened up in order to become a prime meal for them, that they eat this flesh raw, and that is their decision with her. They'd like to uh, probably fatten her up and and, and uh, should become a, uh, a royal meal for them, uh, which she doesn't, <laughs> she's a little worried about. When they're bringing her through the tunnels, they live deep in the earth. Uh, they do not like the sunlight. She sees holes in the walls, and these uh, heads will come in in and out. The uh, Caltains will come in and out, the kind where they uh, nest away or, or hide away or sleep their own little apartments, if you want to call that. They're not <laughs> anything that fancy, but they do that. And, and uh, uh, so uh, Gek uh, presenting her to Lude. Uh, Lude in turn tells Gek. Uh, Yes, this is a prize I want. I want you to take care of her. So please, take care of her. This will be the only job 
you have. Uh, time goes by. It's uh, hours into days, days into weeks, and I believe uh, really months when we're looking at the time of how everything goes through the uh, storyline here. They want to fatten her up. She won't eat. She gets pale in the darkness. They put her into a tower. Uh, and she says the tower doesn't allow her to be outside, which is where she needs to be for her type of, of life, for her people. And that's where she uh, uh, does try to uh, hurt Gek and escape. But she is recaptured and then brought uh, back into uh, a cave. Um, and at this point, around this point, Burroughs jumps over and shows that Gahan now is uh, leaving with a ship, going back to the beginning of the storm to uh, try and find her in the storm. Many people are looking for shelter because the storm is so bad. And uh, in fact, at one point, a tower falls and starts a fire. So many of the men who make uh, John Carter, the warlord, uh, tells, wants to hunt for his daughter, but realizes he has to marshal the forces together to protect uh, helium and, and uh, stop the fire and all the damage that's going on from, from there. But Gahan ends up taking a airship with other people to continue to do it because his heart is set on her. Uh, I found the description for it very much like you would be in a port or a harbor during a storm for ships where they're talking about it rocking back and forth. Mm -hmm. But instead of them just getting in and casting off like you would see in many movies or in many books, he describes about how it's moored or tied up uh, by different uh, ropes and cables and that the wind's rocking back and forth. If they were to just take one off or the other one, they'd be on balance. It would destroy the whole craft right there. And how the uh, axemen or the swordsmen are there ready on the word to cut the cables all at the exact same time to try and make a clean break for it. I thought a lot of thought when I thought, I thought. <laughs> a lot of thought had to go into that. Uh, looking at the... Uh, uh, physics and the the uh, material balance you'd have in a storm like that. I really appreciated what he did with that. Yeah, Burroughs... Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say that Burroughs is really good about thinking out details like that. It gives his stories verisimilitude because he thinks through those little details that that might be a glitch in the story otherwise. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, they do have uh, troubles with the craft and... Uh, there's a crash, and Gahan ends up alone with himself. And you realize now the story is being told from a different point of view, which is his, because he sees this person trying to escape uh, these people that we know as the Caldanes on the right course. And then soon after realizes, oh, this is the princess, or this is Terra of Helium, who he's been searching for. So now he's going to sneak into the city to try and uh, find her and rescue her. Uh, in between these points, I'd love to read uh, a paragraph here that uh, is happening with Gek. Gek is now in trouble because of the escape by her, even though she's recaptured. He is very well, will probably be killed because of this. Uh, Lude now has uh, Tara with him in his chambers. And uh, Gek at this point starts processing what's been happening last couple days. And Burroughs writes this paragraph here where he goes, and he, Gek, 
was to die for this theory. Lude had decreed it. The injustice of it overwhelmed him with rage, but he was helpless. There was no escape. Beyond the enclosure, the banths awaited him. Within his own kind, equally, equally as merciless and ferocious. Among them, there was no such thing as love or loyalty or friendship. They were just brains. He might kill Lude, but what would that profit him? Another king would be loosed from his sealed chamber, and Gek would be killed. He did not know it, but he would not even have the poor satisfaction of satisfied revenge, since he was not capable of killing so abstruse a sentiment. And just before that, he was thinking about uh, the music and about her and starting to have what we would call emotional or loving feelings towards her or friendship or loyalty. This does not happen. This does not is not allowed uh, among the uh, the people there like this. And so we see what you were mentioning, both you and Jess had mentioned earlier, uh, about the character, his character starting to change. We have Gahan who ends up coming across the quarters with Gek in there and uh, says he's looking for Terra of Helium. Does he know where he is? Help me find him or you know, I'll kill you if you don't. And he's like, will you spare my life if I help you find her and help you both get away? Because I can do that. I do not want to stay with my people here because I've been condemned and I will die too. So they go and they do find her. At that point, she is not going to be eaten as though they're going to have a royal meal. But uh, all appearances are that with the uh, Rikor body there, they actually use that as a form of the bodies, the male and female Rikor bodies together to reproduce. And uh, Lud at this time wants a Rikor from what it appears. It doesn't say in so many words, but to uh, take her, basically it would be rape and uh, uh, try and get offspring from this, uh, uh, what they consider to be uh, uh, vital or, or type of uh, being or person they would want to be able to raise and have captured either as workers or as, uh, you know, maybe sex slaves or as uh a raise like we would raise uh, beef and pork for for food. Um, they yeah, do. I, I oh, think it, I, I think it's mostly that last one. There's there's no question that Lude is going to use his Rikor body to rape Terra, but I I don't think he's doing it for any sort of uh, uh, sadism or uh, sexual pleasure. He's doing it just to reproduce. It's a yeah. It's a, if you want, I'll call it. Uh, scientific thing or just yeah mm. just plain reproduction because they don't have that emotional context to it mm. but they would raise her and raise <laughs> what I mean by that uh, sex side would not have been the right term yeah uh, uh, cattle mm. to reproduce and continue to to uh, have this uh, food supply mm -hmm. workers so they do escape they are able to uh, get out through the uh, tunnels and out through the tower to the uh, ship and uh, in this context I also forgot especially with Lude being the, the king of them he has the most intellectual power they have a form of what they actually call mind over matter she's the matter and his is the mind and if they look in his eyes he can control even if they want to run away makes them crawl into his chamber or do their bidding and uh, I believe you will see that the other ones have them in different degrees 
too. But they do get out there. They're going out and going into the ship, and I'm I'm going to turn over to uh, chapter nine from there. Uh, yeah, and um, what I one thing I want to mention about that escape from Lude. Um, actually, am I remembering it correctly? He got uh, Gahan in his sights and froze him, and Terra uh, had to step in and and be proactive yes. there. To, yes, which I thought. Yes, he, he did that. And that's how she was able to break free. Mm. And then, and then, uh, 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 while all this was happening, and uh, Lude was realizing he's losing control of the situation, mm-hmm. Gek throws a knife, and she's yelling at at uh, Gahan to watch out because she thinks. He is turned on them. Is going to kill them for his people. But the knife's actually aimed at uh, Lude and uh, goes right through him and kills him. Yeah, and that's how they escape. Yeah, yeah thank you. Very, yeah. very important part. <laughs> yeah, I just remembered several times that Tara is being proactive. She's just not getting rescued passively. She's in several occasions in this book. She's very proactive herself. Yes. Uh, uh, well, that's another thing for Burroughs too. Uh, um, we we've seen this discussed this in other books. Uh, many of his uh, uh, female characters are proactive. Mm-hmm. They're strong. They're tough. They're intelligent. They're they they're they're not just running through the forest and tripping over a root and need to be helped out. Uh, he very evenly balanced in how he mm-hmm. portrayed characters and the uh, whether the powers or the mindsets they had. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Uh, you don't mess with a Burroughs woman because she'll get stabbed yeah. or skewered with a spear. Uh, <laughs> John Carter says a very similar thing someplace in the Mars stories about don't mess with the woman from helium. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I've got a couple things here I'd like to add, if I may, real quick. Sure. Well, first of all, to clarify, the Banff does indeed have 10 legs. I double checked it, I counted them all. I got the Banff to stand still, and there's 10 legs down there. The okay. Thoth has eight <laughs> legs. I, I've always called the Banff. The engine of destruction, because he is indeed the lion on Barsoom, mm-hmm. and and there is some really great artwork by Joe Jusco that shows the Banff and all of his all of his legs going up the side of a building after somebody. I think it's John Carter. The, the other thing I wanted to mention is John Shea, who was in the what was it, the Prelude. Uh, in real life, Mr. Shea was Burroughs' secretary, and actually is his right hand man, as Burroughs called him, and he was worked for Burroughs in the early 1920s. And I think they actually did play chess with each other as well. Yes, they did. It's exactly right. Good point. <laughs> so, um, okay. Well, uh, we're up to Chapter 9 now. And uh, part of Ga- a part of Gayen's escape plan was to have Terra's damaged flyer handy. It can still fly, but it's missing a propeller, so it can pretty much just go wherever the wind pushes it. Um they make a getaway with Gahan showing his incredible skill with a sword and holding off uh, some of the Kaldanes as they make their getaway. They get away from Bantum. Gek is with them, so he's now a regular character in the story. Uh, Gahan, when he met Terra at the party, was dressed up in really rich, ornate pro, uh, um, um, uh, a harness. Now that he's dressed just in regular clothing or a regular, a regular fighting harness, that's not ornate in any way. Uh, Tara actually doesn't recognize him at first, and they mm-hmm. only did meet like the one time, so I think that's probably understandable. Um, and he takes the name of Turan. He claims to be just a wandering mercenary, um, and that is actually important because at the end of the novel, when uh, Tara admits he's in, she's in love with him. She thinks she's in falling in love with just some average schmo. 
and not <laughs> not the royalty. And that that's the that's the culmination of her character growth. She doesn't care as far as being the man she's in love with, whether he's royalty or commoner. Uh, that's you know he's just the the guy that's very brave and capable that she's fallen in love with. Um, but for now, he takes the name of Turan, and he's usually referred to as Turan by Burroughs most of the time for the rest of the novel. Um, so they are just taken, the flyers taken where the wind takes them. Uh, they have a great conversation with Gek about Gek's philosophy of the intellect being everything uh, that we can talk about a little bit more in the final discussion, but it just, uh, 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 Turan voices some great responses to that, and that it's can't be all brain and it can't be all body it's got to be a balance of them um and it's just a really uh, intelligent conversation um that shows that burroughs really thought through thought things through when he wrote um but they arrive in the land of manator um and there is so much going on here that i'm not going to try and do a an exact summary of it because there's captures there's escapes we meet a lot of characters and all that uh generally Everybody gets captured. Gek and Terra and uh, Turan all get captured within a chapter or so. Um, there's some really creepy scenes going through the streets of uh, Man Manator, especially with Turan before he's captured, seeing people standing still on the balcony and not realizing that they're, that they're stuffed corpses, just wondering like why everybody is so quiet and still. Um, that is just part of that creepy ambiance that Burroughs could... Uh, could achieve sometimes um, everybody's captured we we meet various characters we meet um, Otar the the cruel king of Manator we meet um, Uthor the jet of the next biggest city who's going to be the leader of a rebellion later on uh, we meet Acor who is I believe he's a son of Otar through a slave woman who came from Gaethel um, and who's very brave and popular um, and he gets arrested by Otar fairly early on, which it also s increases the unrest against Otar and helps set up the later rebellion. So by introducing us to all these characters, Burroughs is setting up the political situation in the city and setting up the later action that involves the rebellion and a lot of the other stuff that goes on. Uh, so it's just a, a part of his world building. Um, there's also some hilarious scenes with Gek while he's a prisoner in the dungeon, and they think he's locked up. When the guards aren't looking, the head, Gek can detach himself from his Rikor, you know, let himself out of the cell. Um, um, he lets one guard see him with the head detached, which freaks the guard out, and then when the guard brings others back, he's back on top of the Rikor, just saying, what? I'm just here. Or he'll... He'll release the body and hide for a while, so they'll think he'll escape, and then they'll come look, and he's back there again, and he's just, hey, I've been here all along. Um, it's just, it's really laugh-out-loud funny what he does with Gek in these scenes. Um, and uh, um, so he, but he introduces us to these characters. He defines the political situation in Manator. He establishes that there is unrest and that eventually there's going to be an open rebellion against Otar. Uh, we discover that a lot of the slaves are from Gaethal, from where Turan slash Gahan is king. Um, we also meet Igos, which is one of the few old people we ever meet on Mars. Because people on Mars are apparently functionally immortal. Um, and they used to, before their religion was discredited, they used to, when they were a thousand years old, if they hadn't been killed, which most people were because it's a warlike planet, they would go down the river Is. 
uh, to what they thought was heaven before that was discredited in the novel Gods of Mars. Uh, so almost nobody older than a thousand years is, is, is ever around. Igos, who's the head taxidermist, he stuffs all the bodies of the corpses of the people because that's what they do with their dead. He's, I think, he says he's like 2,000 years old. And he's a withered old guy. So people on Mars do eventually get old. Um, and they, they probably do die of old age at some point. But um, Igor's kind of a creepy guy, too. He eventually does help the good guys. But at first, he he tries to, what, get Terra to stay with him as, as a wife or a or a companion, and uh, he's double-crossing the protagonists. Um, so he's he's a part of the story as well. Um, and uh, so there's all these shenanigans going on, people getting captured, people escaping, introducing new characters, setting up the political situation. Uh, Gek, at one point, has his real crowning moment of awesome, where he, de he, he demonstrates a willingness to give his life for his friends, where at one point he has a mind lock on Otar, and he allows Turin and Terra to escape while he stays behind keeping um, Otar frozen uh, with his mind powers, uh, knowing that he might not be able to get away himself later. Um, so he, he ends up surviving that, but he demonstrates his character growth there by his willingness to, to die for his friends. Um, we also learned that uh, they, they have these live G-Town games where the pieces fight to the death when they're meant to capture each other. And at one point, Terra is recaptured, and she is made the prize in a, uh, in a, G a live G-Town game uh, where Turan realizes he's going to have to take another identity to be able to fight in this game to be able to win Terra back. And that's, that's his best chance to save her at this point. Um, Another thing I want to mention is we were talking about Terra being proactive. Early on in these chapters, not long after her first capture, she knifes a guy to death who's trying to get fresh with her and then hides the corpse. Um, so, like we said, you do not mess with a woman from Mars because it will not end well for you. So she, she is in need of rescuing a lot, like all Burroughs women are, but she's also very brave, very proactive, and we see elements of her character growth uh, here as well. She's, at this point, she's not there completely yet. When Turan confesses his love for her, she just rejects him totally because he's just a lowly mercenary. So she's, not, she's growing as a person, but at this point in the story, she's not completely there yet. Um, so that takes us through chapter 16, where Terra is captured, a prize, uh, going to be a prize in a live G-Tan game, and Turan is planning to rescue her by competing in that game. Um, and so do you guys have any, anything specific you want to say about this section that I left out? I'd, I'd like to inject something I meant to say earlier was, uh, and if anyone with us at this point, chances are really good they're already a Burroughs fan of, mm. of some. But if this is all new to someone listening, uh, if you like the Count of Monte Cristo, if you like the Three Musketeers, uh, uh, the classic authors like that, Burroughs <coughs> really well. This could have very easily been uh, uh, a castle in Persia or mm. or uh, Italy or Germany, uh, and uh, whether it's sword and sorcery or uh, Knights of the Round Table type stuff. Granted, you may not, you might have flying carpets instead of flying craft, or you might just have ships and, and carriages and horses. But his writing could, and he did on some of his books too, where they were, you know, 
uh, English feudal lords and that type mm -hmm. of thing. Uh, it, it fits in. If you like that type of writing, this isn't doesn't fall in what you, you know, tends to be stereotyped as a cheap Saturday afternoon pulp stuff. His writing is very colorful mm -hmm. and, and pulls in many of the classic descriptions as we talked uh, earlier about uh, the flight craft of being like ships rocking in the harbor and his description and the emotion he pours forth on it and draws you into it uh, uh, in a romantic way uh, for the action and, and uh, sword fighting and the uh, hero and heroine and uh, their interactions uh, fits in there superbly. So wow. if people like type of classical stories, check it out. Yeah, I agree. It's very sophisticated storytelling. Uh, it moves along quickly with great action, but it also gets in a lot of plot with the exposition being a, a part of the story that never slows the story down. Uh, it's just, it is, it is superb storytelling in every, in every possible way. Well, that is well said. I don't think I can add anything to it. Y'all have nailed it. This is a story. It's certainly one of my favorites. Mm. Uh, shall I proceed? Uh, yeah, go ahead. We're up to the Giton game, I believe, right? <clears throat> yes. Uh, a couple of uh, housekeeping notes here before I proceed. First of all, your 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 recognition of the many characters was something I was going to mention. There are quite a few people in this, and I really encourage, and, I, and I've done this since I was a young fellow, and it's no disgrace, but but I keep a notepad. When I'm reading a good book, and it's got extraordinary world building and a huge cast of characters, I'll maintain a notepad, write a little note about their name and some background information on them, maybe the page they first appear on. And that is really useful to me in reading a book like this, particularly if I have to set it down for a while and come back to it two weeks later. So I can see who these people are and, and wh what their role is in the story, and it helps me to refresh my memory. And I would encourage it with 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 this story. And again, that's that's not a disgrace to do that. I think it just enhances the experience. Now, another thing that you touched on is that Gahan, our hero protagonist, goes through name changes. He goes by three names in this book. And in fact, uh, for those of you listening at home, I would encourage you if you're going to read this to be sure to jot them down as you move through the story. Gahan eventually becomes Turan, who changes his name briefly, which has already been mentioned. And then during the J10 game phase, so he can play in the uh, live warrior version of Jatan, or Jatan, that's what I call Jatan. He changes his name to Yukal. This occurs uh, towards the end of chapter 16. So, so he goes by three names. And, and the thing that, that does confuse me a little bit, as much as I love and admire Burroughs' work, is that while the character may have the name of Turan or Yukal, Burroughs will still, it's outside of dialogue exposition, Burroughs will still refer to him as Gahan. So he goes back and forth. So just having that jotted down, I think, uh, helps a great deal. Uh, on the game of JTAN, there are several websites, and I've got a list which I'll provide for our video. Several websites devoted to JTAN. Back in the 70s, during the paperback boom, there were there were people and, and I don't want to say clubs, but certainly there was groups of people that were getting together and playing JTAM. And just this past week in my Facebook discussion group, for the love of all things Edgar Rice Bros, <laughs> I, I post a link uh, with some information for a program for a 3D printer, a 3D printer pr to print out to create JTAM pieces. Kid you not. 
And also, that's been uh, JTAN, the topic of JTAN has come up over on Tangor's ERB list um, email service, if anyone subscribes to that. There are several documents in the ERBzine.com also that discuss JTAN, so I'll, I'll have some links for those kinds of things here later on. Uh, a few background, uh, some background info on JTAN, if I may proceed. I, I'm an old chess player, and, and I say old chess player because I finally realized I wasn't any good, so I don't play as often. <laughs> Loves the game. Of course, I, as I said earlier, I always thought it was just absolutely great that Burroughs uh, created the game specifically for for this book. J10 is indeed very similar to chess, and if, if you find the whole deal confusing, just think of it like chess. And if that's confusing, just think of it as a very elaborate game of checkers. But be that as it may, it's played on a 10 by 10 board of alternating black and orange squares. Very common in the cities of Barsoom, and as I said, it's, it has been popular here on Earth. And as we've noted, in Manator, it's played in a gigantic arena with living pieces, sometimes to the death. And in those living piece games where the attacking piece is not guaranteed the square, he has he and, and the person already on the square has to fight it out. Erwin uh, Porges, in his landmark biography on Burroughs, says the use of JTAN in the book is an important device which, quote, achieves a unity and intensity not attained in other works, unquote. Now, a few, a few words. This is additional um, uh, information here. I said it's a 10 by 10 squares. There are 20 black pieces, and on the opposing side, there's 20 orange pieces. Uh, these pieces have military names, as military associated with, with Barsoom's uh, warriors. There is the Panthan, who can move one space forward or sideways, never backward. There is the Warrior, who can move two squares straight in any direction or combination. The Padwar, two squares diagonal in any direction or combination. The Dewar, and Dewar means captain, by the way, we would have here in the, in the U.S. military. The Dewar can move three squares straight in any direction or combination. Now, uh, one interesting point that Burroughs brought up, just to make this seem even more real, in Manator, they don't have flyers. So instead of the flyer J10 piece, they call it the Oddwar. It moves three spaces diagonal and can jump over a piece, a little bit like the knight from chess. Mm -hmm. The chief is the most powerful. He can move three spaces in any direction, in any combination. He may only be taken by the opposing chief. And the princess can move three spaces, and if the princess is captured, the game is done, over with. Oh, there's also a, a thote, a little bit like the knight from, from chess. He can move one straight square and then one diagonal. So he keeps making left-hand turns or right-hand turns is what I see. Mm, that's everything I have on the game of Jatan, or Jatan, as I have called it all these years. Now, moving through 23 pages of notes. Yes, go ahead. I was just going to say, I love, I love that quote you shared from the Burroughs biography. I think that nails it on Jatan being a unifying concept in the novel. Indeed, indeed. Um, Porges, as I said, uh, did a fine job and, and, uh, uh, talking about Burroughs' life. And uh, Supposedly, there's he had enough notes where he could have done a whole other book, and that book is sizable if you're familiar with it. Mm. But I do recommend yeah, reference books. Now, so I'm picking up the action here with uh, Chapter 17 of Play to the Death. And as we've stated earlier, Gahan also knows or goes by the name of Turan and also go by, goes by the name of Ucal. So I may jump back and forth on these, so just make a note of that if you please. Mm -hmm. And note also, and this is mentioned in here, 
that Gahan went through and, and chose the people for his game. And he was looking for warriors. And he really wanted people from, from countries that he was familiar with, like his own Gathal and also Helium. So he picks up for his team. This is, this is like choosing sides for a game of uh, baseball or basketball or something. He picks up for his team Valdor from Helium, Helium and Floran from Gathal. So those names will pop up here later on, so make a note of that. Valdor from Helium and Floran from Gathal are playing on Gahan's team. So in Chapter 17, the second J-10 game of the day is a game to the death, where Tara is placed on the Black Princess Square, and this is the person we're playing for. The Orange Chief on the other side is Eudor, and his princess is Lano. Now, Eudor, if memory serves, is the Jedex main... I've got notes here someplace. It's the Jedex um, main warrior. The Jedex there being Otar, who is cruel and sadistic Jedex of Manator. So, Tara recognizes Yukal. She figures out that that is, that is really to whom she knows is Turan, but through the powers of Barsumium disguises that it's not realized is Gahan, who is her romantic interest. She just doesn't know that yet either. So the play begins. Eudora's tactics are forceful. Yukal's games or tactics are calculated. The contest is long and furious. It drags in towards dusk. And looking on, the onlookers feel that this duel on the JTAN of live warriors on the JTAN board is historic in the annals of JTAN at Manator. That's pert near a direct quote from the book. Both opponents trade slashes and blood, but neither makes decisive moves. Every trick and every subterfuge is employed. And as darkness nears, Princess Tara looks on wondering, would the fight ever end? Would the game be called a draw? Twenty minutes before dark, Yukal, also known as Turan, also known as Gahan, flashes and cleaves the evil Eudor. Moving on now to chapter eighteen. Valdor and Florin, whom I mentioned earlier, were on Gahan's uh, team, secretly go to the gates below Otar's enclosure. Now, Otar is the Jeddak in Manator. He's evil, cruel, and sadistic. He's a bad guy. Mm -hmm. Gahan is led before the disapproving Otar. Igos, who Tara thought she killed earlier, scrutinizes them and identifies Yukal as Turin, or Gahan. Meanwhile... Valdor and Florin are opening the gates so they can all make a quick getaway. And they do. Under the cover of sudden darkness, Gahan, Valdor, Florin head out towards the gate of enemies, or through the gate of enemies, where Uthor, the Jet of Mantos, is camped after a disagreement with Otar. Now, you recall when I was discussing other cities earlier, one of those other cities was Mantos. The Jeddak there is Uthor, and, and he... And Otar do not get along, so there's bad blood between them. So, Gahan, uh, Valdor, and Florin aim to offer their services to Uthor. Now, Tara is with them also. A mounted squad catches and engages them and manages to abduct Tara. Turan kills his antagonist and follows Tara on Thothback. Now, 
imagine that, if you will. We were talking about the thoats having eight legs earlier. It's a huge, very powerful-looking, horse-like creature. That's the way I think of it. And if you recall the first edition with that great artwork showing a warrior on top of a thoat fighting another fellow there, that is that image right there is most likely the hardcover um, uh, image of, of uh, Turan killing his antagonist and taking off after Tara. Turan pursues them, Tara and her abductor, into the palace. The abductor threatens Tara if Turan comes closer. Meanwhile, a second Manatorian appears in the background, causing Turan to think, oh boy, now I'm going to be fighting two people. However, the second Manatorian cleaves the captor from behind, freeing Tara. Turns out, the second Manatorian is actually Tazor, a friend of Gahan's youth who himself was abducted many years ago, as you were talking about. Uh, people being abducted from other cities. I think this young fellow came from Gathal, I believe. Yes, back he did. When he, back when he was a young fellow. Mm -hmm. Turan requests Tazor to uh, go to Uthor to besiege Otar's palace to rescue Tara. Tazor leaves, leaves uh, Gahan and Tara in the rooms of the dead former ruler, Omai, or Omei. It's spelled O-M-A-I, and I'm going to try to be consistent and call him O-M-A-I. And when you hear what's going on in there, we'll all be saying, oh, May. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, so Tyra and Turan are talking, and she says she can only consider love for her betrothed, who is Dejor Cantus. Tyra explains that after knifing Igos, she was captured before she could help Turan, but she did lie about his location. So they have an opportunity to talk and swap stories there while they're waiting on uh Tazor to go find go find some help. Chapter 19. So let's recap our characters. Of course, we have uh, Tara and, and we have uh, Gahan and his other names. We've mentioned Igaus, the 2,000-year-old embalmer, and Ethas, the chief of Manator, who is Otar's favorite. And Akor is the keeper of the towers of Jatan and Manator, the son of Otar. Chapter 19, titled Menace from the Dead. These people will come into play here. Igos, that embalmer, tells Otar, the cruel and sadistic Jeddak, at a banquet that he knows Turan and Tara's location. And that location is the haunted chambers of Omei the Cruel, or Omai if you prefer. Three chiefs volunteer to enter the haunted chamber, and everyone's scared to death of this place. There's some spooky things going on in there. Meanwhile, Turan and Tara stay in the room. Tara remarks upon her meeting of Gahan of Gathal uh, disparagingly and then generally reveals the affection for Turan the Panthon. So she finally admits that she cares for Turan. She, she was describing her meeting to Turan of meeting Gahan, not realizing she's talking to the same person. After a kiss, she admits her love, begging Turan that she will not dishonor her commitment to the Jor Cantos. Turan struggles with his desire then here is the approach of armed men. Now, they're hiding in this room, uh, which is the uh, chambers of Omai, Omai the Cruel, <laughs> noting that there's a dead body there because they embalm people and put them on display. It's all very spooky. <laughs> Seeking escape, they enter a different room where a JTAN game is being played. But Turan realizes the players are long dead. Their life likeness the result of the ancient taxidermist's art. They enter another dis dusty bedroom wrapped with draperies, and here he is. Here, near a massive bed, lies a dead man, Omei the Cruel. They hide there in the dark, watching the chamber. 
So then they watched come in three chiefs and 12 warriors who followed tracks to the dust into the haunted chamber of Ome with nerves on edge. From somewhere comes a moan followed by a shriek, and those brave warriors, three chiefs and 12 warriors, are panicked, and they take off running. They return to Otar to tell them what they discovered, and he is not impressed. <laughs> Chapter 20, The Charge of Cowardice. Back in the haunted chambers of Ome, Turan discovers that Tara's gone. Gee, how did this happen? They were together just a moment, hiding behind the curtains. He discovers behind those those curtains, a door is ajar. He hears laughter in the distance. <clears throat> and finds footprints, follows the faint trail of disturbed dust. Later, he, while following that trail, he runs into Gek. They bring each other up to date as to what's going on. Acor has escaped and joined Uthor at the Gate of Enemies. Taser provides information to Gek. They discuss a plan involving Uthor's human forces and the Gatholian slaves rising up against Otar. Turan writes a message to Florian, one of his buddies from the J10 game, bidding Gek to deliver it. Gek avows his loyalty. He will never return to Bantoon because he has learned the finer things in life, the love of music and friendship, as we had noted earlier. Elsewhere, Otar is surprised when Igos enters the banquet hall with Tara. Well, here's Tara. Igos has her. Igos is, of course, let me check my list. Igos is, of course, the 2,000-year-old embalmer of Manatar. He stole Tara from under Gahan's nose. Igos says Turan is over in Ome's death chamber. Otar orders uh, Tara to die in his side as a princess of helium. And Otar declares he will marry Tara on the seventh day. Well, Tara is not thrilled with that news at all. Uh, he even announces this news, he being Igos, no, not Igos. Otar announces this news to the chiefs of Manatar. Tu Meanwhile, Turan explores the ancient corridors armed with Gek's descriptions. Days later, Ethos speaks freely to Otar, the chieftains discuss. The Otar will not enter the chambers of Omai, as well as their fondness for Acor, conveying the general opinion that Otar is a coward. Otar, faced with revolution, tells Ethos to announce he will search for Turan and Omai's chambers. Now, during this time here, Tara is still under the control of the evil Otar. Which takes us into chapter... Dramatic pause, chapter 21, A Risk for Love. So once again here we have Igos recapping the characters, the 2,000-year-old embalmer of Manatar, Ethos, the chief of Manatar, Otar's favorite, Otar is the cruel and sadistic Jeddak, Akor is the keeper of the Towers of Jatan, and Omai, oh the cruel, he's the deceased guy in the spooky room. And So Ethos, the chief of Manator, announces that Otar will enter the chamber of Omai, taunting their courage to accompany their Jeddak. Igos declares he will attend and that he's been there before and has no fear of a 5,000-year-old corpse. Now, this is the 2,000-year-old embalmers. <laughs> when, when the time, see, they got something in common. They're really old. <laughs> when the time comes, Otar nervously approaches the chamber aware he is followed by his people. Otar enters the chamber and faints as a figure rises from the bed. I said there were strange things going on in that room. <laughs> well, Turan, who happens to be in there hiding, notes the presence of Igos and the curtain hangings, who speaks quickly, I came to make sure the great coward did not cheat us. 
Igas offers his sword to Turan, reveals where Tara is confined. Igas prevents Turan from slaying the unconscious Otar, who's over there collapsed in, in the, on the floor in the bedroom, because Otar's women would slay Tara, so we can't have that. Igas kneels briefly beside Otar, then leads Turan through the corridors to a rooftop where he points out the tower confining Tara. Igas departs. Turan scales the indicated tower, locates the room. Turan is saved by Tara's deadly knife attack upon a eunuch guard. Turan, my chief, she cries. One kiss, he says, before I go, my princess. And things are getting serious here. Just in time for chapter 22. At the moment of marriage. Otar, the cruel and sadistic Jedi, revives. He lies at the banquet through his teeth and finds out his dagger is missing. On the wedding day, Ethos brings Tara to Otar. Otar enters the Hall of Chiefs, returning five minutes later. The groom stops. Attempted suicide, Otar, disheveled, enters the room, crying imposter. Turan removes his mask. Igos reveals Otar's cowardice, saying, Otar's dagger is in Omai's bed. Three and three warriors hurry to Omai's chamber while warriors approach Turan. Uthor enters, proclaiming Akor the Jeddak, Akor being the keeper of the Towers of Jitan. And a wounded Manatar Padwar reports the city has fallen, the slaves have ris risen, and ships from Helium and Gathal are landing warriors. Moments later, John Carter and Jor Canthus enter, finding Tara is unharmed. John Carter offers a truce. The chiefs of Manatar look to Otar. Carter hears of the three captured chiefs relaying Otar's cowardice and the found dagger. The people support Akar. Otar uses in the uses the incriminating dagger for suicide, Akor decries peace. The Jorkantos apologizes to Tar. He thought she was dead. He married Olivia Marthas and offers his life for dishonoring their promise. Tara, happy as she can be, releases him as Catholian warriors arrive. Tara introduces Turan. Turan admits he's really a gay hand, and Tara is surprised but recovers quickly. Dead or Panthon, what difference does it make what one slave has been, she says. They all go off happily ever after with Gek living in Helium with a Rikor mouth. End of story. <laughs> yeah, and that, there, there's some great stuff in that section. Um, and I, I crossed over it and I realized that. Yeah. This was yeah, well, we'd be here all night if we gave a detailed summary and we'd spoil <laughs> it for anybody who hasn't read it yet. Um, but there are there's some, the a bit where... Um, Turan climbs up the tower to see Tara to tell her, don't worry about your being forced to marry. I'll be there to rescue her. He, does, he wants to make sure she doesn't commit suicide before that happens. And uh, when she saves him by stabbing a guard who, who would have had Gahan cold, I love the part where he says, you know, what are we going to do with the body? And she basically says, well, don't worry about it. I can just admit I killed him. What are they going to do? I'm, I'm about to marry the local king. Um, and it's a, just a wonderful scene. It's once again, she's being proactive and she's thinking things through as well as stabbing people to death. She's, uh, uh, she's, it's really an awesome moment for her. Um, and I want to say the parts in Oh My's, the, the uh, haunted chamber are both creepy and funny at the same time. Uh, Burroughs really hits a nice vibe there when he writes about it. Because uh, we, reading the book in the third person, no, there's no ghosts in there, uh, but uh, you know, Omai and his men don't, or Omei and his men don't, and so their terrified reactions actually are, I think, I think are pretty amusing. 
Well, you know, humor and horror can mix really well, though. You take movies like Gremlins, or there's a lot of other ones. Mm-hmm. It could work very well. Scene like this again. This 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 thing just begs to be made as a science fiction slash horror movie, if you want to call it. <laughs> I don't want to give it necessarily that designation. It's it's Edgar Rice Burroughs story. Yeah, it incorporates those elements so well. Uh, to me, this. Uh, has the makings for being a, 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 a film masterpiece. It incorporates so many things. It could fall right into the same thing we're looking at when people regard uh, Alien or some of these other movies. His descriptions of brought to life would be just amazing. I think I agree. I think this would make a good movie if 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 they keep it faithful to the book. Yes. So. Uh, I was thinking while I was going through the summary here just now. I was thinking of Abbott and Costello and be Frankenstein. Yeah, perfect example. Yes. You have humor, and the humor is really funny, and you have horror, but the, and the horror elements are taken seriously. It's it's a perfect uh, example of that. So, so, um, but yeah, I think the the aside from the adventure stuff, which is done so well, the the book really revolves around Tara's growth as a character, from being a spoiled brat to being. Someone who just wants to marry she's the guy she's in love with and doesn't care about his social status anymore. Um, and it's it's really, really well done. She's a real three-dimensional character, um, has any number of awesome moments, and then turns out to have grown as a person when we get to the end. And that's what people, you know, whether you're writing yourself, and I know each of us uh, write, but you hear in uh, writing books or writing coaches or teachers anything is uh, to have a story that people become involved in you have to have character development you do yeah and of course the other major character de- development is Gek in, uh, in learning the concepts of humanity and friendship and music and all of that and once again it's done really well it's a believable character growth for him I really wish he'd used Gek in later uh, Barsoom novels you know he was around in Helium but he never shows up again and He's a great character in his own right. A very good character. So, um, and then, uh, you know, the last thing I wanted to mention again was uh, uh, Burroughs' commentary on on uh, uh, not being either too intellectual like the Caldanes are or, or too, uh, you know, physical. And, you know, somebody who just lives for his next meal, I think, is sort of what Gahan says at one point. That you have to have a balance. You have to have your mind and your body. And you have to have intellect and emotion. And they're both important to a, to a healthy person. Um, and Gex, converse, Gex and Turan's conversation about that uh, in the flyer after they escape from Bantum is just really intelligent and insightful, I think. I'd agree that, with that. that. That same question of intellect versus body comes up in another book where the, uh, the, the phantom bowmen of Lothar appear. And, and, and the question there is about, again, about developing an intellect and, and, and versus, versus everything. Yeah, that's and, you know, Thu- Thu- yeah. Thuvia Made of Mars, the book Good. actually just before this in the series. Right, mm-hmm. right. But I, but I, I personally, though, between the two, I personally prefer the examination in this in this book. I think it really hits the target question better. Um, although it's it's touched on in, in Thuvia, but I think it's hit better here. Yeah, in Thuvia, I think he's mostly 
uh, kind of making fun of academics who philosophize in complicated ways without actually really saying anything constructive. Um, in, in, in Chessmen of Mars, it's more like a, a more serious examination of the idea of, of needing both intellect and, and uh, emotion. Very good. Practical versus academic. Very mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. Good point. That's what, that's what I was trying to get to. Yeah. Um, and so that is the Chessmen of Mars. Um, anything else you guys want to say? I think we've covered it really well. Well, I, I was left uh, wanting for two things after this story. Maybe it's a reflection of the times or mm -hmm. fact that it's been a few years since I've gone through this book. One is, is uh, uh, I think it'd be really cool if uh, at a dum-dum or an e cough <laughs> someone put together a uh, Jeddak tournament <laughs> brought into boards and uh, pieces to play with. Yeah, but just regular boards, not real people hacking each other to death. No, we that would be for like an RPG. <laughs> if someone, someone could create a, a computer game, role role uh, uh, playing mm. uh, animated computer game, where you had it and had a JTEC as a uh, three dimensional type game you could play on your computer mm -hmm. or against other people on the web or. Uh, in their consoles and stuff, that that would be, uh, I think, a really cool thing. That would be, but yeah. I think the lesson learned here, though, is if somebody invites me over to play JTAN, I'm taking my sword with me. <laughs> <laughs> I will not be caught. I will not be caught empty-handed. Mm -hmm. um, okay, but uh, just about Burroughs' science fiction in general, um, I have a Ray Bradbury quote I want to share here. Uh, so this is, as I said, from Ray Bradbury, who was a huge Burroughs fan. Uh, quote, throughout his many novels, Burroughs carries on a timeless tradition of weaving the fabric of fantasy and the morals and ideals of society into one whole that became a commentary on the culture in which he lived. Burroughs stands separate from Verne and Kipling because of his romantic unreason. Burroughs' unreason is rooted in his portrayal of scenes. He shows his characters as lifelike and believable, but puts them in an environment that is scientifically or realistically unlikely. Burroughs' difference in popularity stems from his reader's belief that Burroughs' world and characters could possibly exist, however unlikely that might seem. End quote. Um, and I think that captures it perfectly. He created stuff that's scientific nonsense but as we're reading it we accept it as real uh, just about any Burroughs scene has a fan has that part of his brain where he thinks of Burroughs as a historian rather than a fiction writer and that all this stuff actually exists because his creations are that vivid and that they are not scientifically plausible is completely beside the point they're just real it's escapism mm -hmm. it's fun yeah it is. Um, it is. It's just he was just great fun as a writer. It's impossible to not enjoy a Burroughs novel just because he was. Very, excuse me. I was just going to say that is really very, very well said. That's an excellent quote. And I'm, I'm sitting here right now looking at uh, the Ray Bradbury interviews, listen to the echoes, uh, a fine collection of, of Bradbury commentary. And there are some references to Burroughs in there. I have to think the very quote that you that you just mentioned. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, um, it is when Burroughs was a, or when Bradbury was a kid. I think I think I remember him keeping a scrapbook of the Hal Foster Tarzan comic strip, just so that he <laughs> would have it saved to go back and read later. 
So, uh, so he was always a fan of Burroughs and, and one of his greatest supporters as how influential and how good a, a, a writer he was and how good a writer he was. So, Stuff like ERB web comics, they take a couple panels to show a young Ray Bradbury mm-hmm. uh, bumping into Edgar Rice Burroughs where Burroughs was at a book signing event. Oh, cool. Very special tribute. I'll have to look around for that now. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so anything else we want to say about uh, Chessmen of Mars before we uh, go on to what we're going to do next time? Well, I encourage everyone to get out there and read this fine book. It's an exciting adventure. And, and, and it's your typical Burroughs adventure with lots of thrills and chills and excitement and adventure. But it's got fine characters, fine world building. And, and, and if you stop and think about it, there's, there's some really good stuff in there to think about. Mm-hmm. There really is. So... Um, but I agree, and I think uh, Scott, your comparison to like uh, the books of Alexander Duba is a good one. Yeah. Is his 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 uh, his plotting and his characters um, and how he weaves the action is really is that sophisticated, um, and he's just a he's an author that just anybody ought to be able to enjoy. Well, you know, we're going through these and revisiting some of them, and I've done some on my own the last couple of years, more specifically more than Tarzan uh, stories, but um, what we've been doing here and, and uh, picking up, like, and which has been a long, long time for me, and I'm just going like, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed all over again. And, mm-hmm. and and even if you want to skim parts, you can't. You're pulling back, saying, wait a minute, I, I, I don't want to miss it. And what Bradbury said, what you quoted about there, about the thing, I've, I've had this discussion with other friends of mine who, who are in the area who like uh, uh, science fiction and, and alternate uh, uh, histories and fantasy books, and some who who are fellow writers, we you know discuss like we're discussing here long distance, um, is uh, you know well you can't. Some of them say oh, you can't really do a mo- uh, uh, story, uh, write a book about Mars and having it be like ERB again. Uh, I won't say I, I could be ERB. But I'm willing, I'm willing to let loose and, and let the reality part of it go again. If you want to have a kingdom on, on Mars and, and uh, have uh, invaders or space visitors go there, or if you just want to name a planet we don't know about and, and put it in another time and place, that's fine. These stories, and you can see it by so many fabulous authors that are out there and carrying on tradition. When, when you're not writing them in a condescending way and you're sincere about it and having at least a, a common ability to tell a story that helps elevate all of it. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's fun to read and I think there's plenty of room out there for people to accept that. Yeah, I think all it's... A little imagination, just a little imagination. It's all you need. Mm-hmm. So... Um... Okay, well, uh, thank you both. I think this has been a great podcast. Um, and next time, we were going to do War Chief. One of, we're going to dip into one of ERB's westerns, um, which I am really looking forward to that. I cannot remember the last time I read that. I think I may have read it as a young teen um, and not since then. So I'm really looking forward to going back into that one. It's so, a fun story. Mm, yeah, the, I've been reading the online comic strip adaptation of it and enjoying that enormously. Yes. So well, I'm that's old. another thing for anyone out there. Go on out to the ERB pages with those comic strips. Mm-hmm. They're well worth the two bucks a month. You're not gonna, <laughs> you're not gonna find uh, better uh, 
Comics Anywhere for breaks like that. Mm-hmm. Well said, well said. Um, okay, so uh, once again, my name is Tim DeForest. Um, I keep a blog, comics, old-time radio, and other cool stuff. Uh, you can find my writings about pulps and old-time radio and comic strips there, and a link to my books on Amazon where you can buy my books and make me wealthy. Um, Jess's website, is, well, Jess mentioned uh, your Facebook page again. For the love of all things Edgar Rice Bros, come and talk ERB with us. We're open 24-7. Mm-hmm. And Scott, you're going to be having a, uh, do you want to mention Red Canals? Sure, yeah. Uh, uh, we're shooting for a March launch. Uh, March being named for the God of War for Mars itself, uh, called Red Canals, which is um, a, a celebration of all things Mars, all things Mars uh, in our imagination. Mm-hmm. Movies, books, uh, comic strips, anything in that area. And you know, you know Edgar Rice Worlds is going to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's it for now, and we will be back with another podcast in early 2019. So thank you for listening.